Welcome back. This is part two of my deep dive into the Anthony Garcia case with Bob Mata of the fantastic podcast, The Defense Diaries. Bob was part of Anthony Garcia's defense team five years ago when this serial killer was tried for the murder of four people. Now, people call Anthony Garcia a serial killer, and I'm putting that in air quotes that you obviously can't see because he killed four victims over the course of a few years. But to me, it takes much more than that to be a serial killer, including a certain MO that I think was just not present in Anthony Garcia. I do think he was a very mentally disturbed psychopath who felt jaded by the medical community and decided to seek revenge in the form of murder. But I don't think he was a serial killer. In fact, the rabbit holes that Bob Mata led me down in this next part of our Anthony Garcia series make me wonder if Anthony Garcia even really did it. Bob's thought-provoking theories on this case leave room for reasonable doubt as to whether these four murders could have been completely unrelated and committed by someone else entirely. Just like in part one, we do jump around a little bit because this case spanned the course of years and there is just so much to it. And as you'll notice, Bob, well, he really likes to talk. So this next part is all about Bob with not a whole lot of Kelly chiming in. But if you enjoy this subject matter and Bob's hosting style, well, you're in luck because while The Defense Diaries is currently bringing you the John Wayne Gacy case right now in season one of their show, well, season two of Bob's show is going to be all about what we're discussing right now, which is Anthony Garcia. So you've got that to look forward to. Now, a quick word from our sponsors, and we'll get right into part two of my crossover with the Defense Diaries podcast. And now, back to the show. All right, so, uh, yeah, we'll kind of jump in. So, uh, Anthony Garcia proceeds to have many, many issues. Um, as he kind of like stumbles his way through a medical career. Fast forward to 2008, in March of 2008, um, you know, in this little beautiful neighborhood in Omaha, Nebraska, uh, called Dundee. It's basically where all the doctors, all the professors, because Creighton is situated right in the heart of Omaha. So while it's kind of a bigger town for the Midwest, it really is at, at its bones, at its core, a college town. You know, it's definitely, um, you know, kind of the heartbeat of the, of the town. So uh, on this particular day, which was March 13th, this young boy named Thomas Hunter uh, is getting off the bus. All the moms are out, you know, watching their kids get off the bus. You know, they, it's a, it's a neighborhood and it's got that neighborhood feel. All the people know each other. All the people know the kids, you know, so on this particular day, probably three to four people see Thomas get off, see him walk up to his house. He's got a big walkway, big set of stairs, goes up, but he actually goes in through the back of his house always. So nothing unusual is seen at that point. Now there's a gentleman that lives across the street who uh, was named Paul Medine. Uh, he happened to be out. His kid was also coming home from school. He notices that there, uh, at some point after Thomas goes into the house, 
that somebody walks up to the front door of the house and rings the bell. Now, what Medine testified to, and we'll, again, we'll get to like kind of the specifics of that, um, is that he sees what he looks to think is, is an adult answer the door. And he thinks that the adult either had a hat on or, uh, you know, some kind of like a do rag on, on her head. And he looks down, he loses, you know, he doesn't keep watching it intently. You know, but the next time he looks back, whoever was at the front door is no longer at the front door. So he just assumes that they went into the house. So, um, at that point, there's no other witnesses that see anybody ever come out of that house. You fast forward to about six o'clock PM, um, Stephen Hunter, who's the owner and the father of Thomas Hunter arrives home, comes in and immediately sees that, um, his cleaning woman. No, actually he, he actually sees his son. Uh, laying on the floor. Uh, right in the entryway right, area? Right, yeah, or? kind of in the entryway, like a little bit closer to like, because they had like an entryway, which was a hallway, and then like kind of a big open room that led into like a, an open kitchen area. Thomas just wanted to come home from school, get a Dr. Pepper and play his video games. Right, yeah, and it's like, I think that was his normal routine. You know, he would come in, jump on his Xbox, he'd get on Xbox Live. Right. You know, he was kind of involved in a community there. He was. Yeah, as kids are, and I worry about that a lot, but it sounded like detectives were looking into that. Like the Xbox Live, was there a predator on the video game system or something like that? Very much so. Yeah. Very much so. So Dr. Hunter comes in, sees his son laying on the floor. Um, and he, but he had a nanny, right? Too, Shirley. So Shirley wasn't a nanny. She was a straight up cleaning woman. Okay. And so she only came once a week and it happened to be on Thursdays, which is the day that this was. Okay. Um, so he then starts, he sees his son. He doesn't immediately run and pick up the phone, but he, he tries to figure out where Shirley is. I think he ends up discovering Shirley. Um, upstairs, and I, I want to double check on that, but because it's been a few Wait years a since I handled Let's the case. Rewind. He saw his son bleeding out on the floor with a knife in his neck, yeah. and he ran around trying to find someone else. I don't think that's what I would do yeah, in that situation. And, and it's it, you know, and during the course of. Um, when I kind of do the deep dive on this case, I'll, I'm going to play the 911 call from... I would love to hear that. I haven't heard that. It's disturbing. Like, it, the first time I heard it, I immediately, you know, put myself into the situation where if I had discovered one of my kids in that state and what I would sound like making that call, and he does not sound like somebody who just found his child murdered. I feel like there's more to the story. It rocked me to my core. Like I, I was like, it rocked me to my core so much that I had convinced myself that he somehow <laughs> might have been involved. It, okay, it was, so it was, that's what we were talking about earlier. You were like, I'm not convinced that Anthony Garcia did it. And I said bullshit on that. Oh, I, Kelly, I will, I will give you much, much more than so that. So there's a lot. There's a lot more. Every story it. that everyone has, that I've heard that's done this show in terms of a podcast has done one side of the case. I've been binging all about this case, like yeah. for days in preparation to meet up with you for this 
I've it's, never heard anyone oh, give no, any reasonable doubt on any of that. Well, there's a lot. There's a lot. I love the twists. You know, maybe they did it. Maybe they're in jail for it. But, like, I love that other side to the story and that yeah, other I, mystery. I sit here today and especially with the Brombeck murders, it's a whodunit. Like, I do not think that Anthony Garcia committed those murders. I do not. I'll kind of, I'll say my piece. I'll kind of give you what our defense was, and I'll give you some details in terms of facts, like actual facts, yeah. and, like, you can come to your own conclusion, you know. So but maybe that's he's like, a little biased, but... I, I'm certainly biased, but is there anything better than a whodunit? There really isn't. So Hunter gets home. Eventually he discovers Shirley. Same thing. And, and, and the most disturbing thing about both of the victims is that they are left with the knives that they were killed with sticking out of their necks. Um, oddly enough, it's extremely rare. So that they're left in the neck. Yeah. So they usually well, no, go and usually, discard the weapon or No, what? usually they slit the throat. So this this was unusual in terms of the placement that the blade uh you know there 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 probably had to have been some kind of knowledge as to exactly the location because when you're slitting from ear to ear you're not missing. You know what I, I know, mean? but like everyone has that knowledge. You know where your carotid artery is. Where is it? Is. Point to it. Like, now you can't see this, folks. Like, right here. Mm, I don't know. Right? Mm, if I wanted to kill someone, I know what to do. Mm, maybe. Yeah, it's so, like, but remember, like I was telling you before, a knife a knife fight is a whole different thing. It's not like it is in TVs and movies. It's it's a moving target, and it's somebody, you know, it, it's it's a it's a thing. Like, it's... it's If it's a 10-year-old, that's a different story. If it's a 70-year-old housekeeper... Yeah, she was surely, like 50. She was fifty. Oh, yeah, that's a different she, story. She was, she's like she's right, about she, my she, age. She, she was spry. There, there's a lot that we can dig into about this whole crime scene and like how it went so down. Much, I have so much misinformation on the case, and Bob, you know all the shit. I do know all the shit, and it was like you know that's kind of how we crafted the defense. So, in, in part of what we did in terms of crafting the defense is we hired a criminologist. The guy's name was Brent Turvey. He was pretty renowned. You know, this guy had dealt with. He was he was relatively high profile in terms of his like he he knew his shit, let me put it that way. So what Brent Turvey turns out saying is that in all his years and he had been doing it for I think at that point seventeen years, he had done work with the cartels. He'd seen everything, you know, Colombian necktie shit. He'd seen Wait, what's Colombian necktie shit? That's you know, like where they cut the throat and then they pulled the tongue out. <laughs> What? I don't know about yeah. this. Stop. What? Really? Oh yeah. I need to know. Tell me about that. Yeah. So, so essentially, it, it's it's where they slice the throat all the way, like an ear to ear type deal. But then they go in and they pull the tongue. So that, and then they pull it through the the slit in the throat, so that it looks like a tie. So your your tongue is sitting down here. So they call that a Colombian neck tie. That's a thing. It is a thing. What do you have to do to get that? Uh, you got to fuck with somebody in the cartel, typically. You know, like that. That's, that's, I think if you steal their money or their drugs, you're pretty much on the radar for getting that done to you. You've done shit with cases like that? Uh, I've handled some cartel cases, but this guy, Brent Turvey, has handled hundreds of them. His absolute opinion on that was that that was an MO, because in all of his time and evaluating every case that he had over his 15, 20 year career, he had never seen a situation where the knives had been left in the neck like that, ever. 
said he'd seen him like in the body, but that for for his purposes that he had never seen the knives left in the neck. So he considered that to be an MO, which is going to get really fascinating when we kind of like keep going because there's a whole nother part of that that matters. The knives that were left in the victim's necks were from the house. Correct. From the butcher block Correct. of knives. That's 100% accurate. And, and you know, that was always one of the kind of the challenging things because there were two things that always kind of stuck in my craw when I was handling that case. And it was like, one, this guy, whoever committed the crimes, and obviously my client's been convicted at this point, so it's presumed that he did. I don't necessarily agree with it, but the fact that no DNA was found at all, and I'm talking about, and when we kind of get into the trial aspect of it, of like the witnesses who, you know, and I'm sure that when you were, you know, kind of doing your research, you heard that there were four or five people that saw a strange guy walking yes, around the neighborhood. Yes, Yeah, they were describing him as an olive-skinned man. Right, and they, in an ill-fitting suit. Was it a Toyota RAV4 or something like that? Yeah, Honda RAV4. Honda, yes. Yeah, same diff. They were like immediately like reporting that he looked odd for the area. Right. Why was that? Yeah, right. It was a super crusty white neighborhood. That's why. Right. There you and go, I Bob. Mean, that's, like a lot of people noticed that person. I ended up cross-examining five witnesses that had made statements to the police that they had seen somebody uh, that didn't belong in the neighborhood. It was kind of how they termed it, walking around uh, that afternoon. And, and they all kind of had a reasonably similar description of the guy. There was uh, a woman that lived the block behind the block that Stephen Hunter lived on. Uh, she was the one who saw the, the RAV4 that was parked. Okay. What? That's what I said. I don't know if it was a RAV. It was definitely. That's what it is. That's what it was. It was CRV. Bob Maud is wrong and Kelly Brink is right. Except the vehicle was a CRV. So, <laughs> so yeah, I mean, it turned out that I was actually, because it was a Honda. Right. We were both, we were both wrong. It's a Honda. It was a Honda CRV. It wasn't a, but he was right. It was a Toyota or is a RAV4. But they look identical. Just go on, bro. Yeah, yeah, you go then. You make words. So Mary sees this guy park, okay, on her block and then sees him walk down the sidewalk and then loses vision of him. And and she's one of these older gals who's like a window sitter. When you say older gal? Like I'd say late 60s. Okay, thank you. Yeah, like an older gal. Like a legit, like a, like a grandmotherly type gal. Okay. Um, so she... She's sitting there and she sees this guy. And then there's a, a woman named Dana Boyle who lives and, you know, because there was kind of a little circle, um, like a parkway in the middle of this area in Dundee, like where the bus dropped the kids off with like some trees. And, and you know, so Dana Boyle at some point had seen the same guy with an ill-fitting suit carrying some kind of satchel or kind of like a duffel bag, but she said it looked more like a satchel or you know, there's a shoulder strap type bag. Paul Medine, who was the guy who saw the guy come up to the door, the front door, had a little bit of a different description. He was confident that the guy that went up to the door was wearing a hat. You know, so the, there's four or five people that we'll talk about when we kind of get into the trial side of it. But I'm with you there. So my, my whole thing with the DNA with this guy is that the, if it's the same guy 
who's walking around in the neighborhood that they're, they're assuming is the guy that went in and killed. He was wearing none of those things that you just described. Okay. And he didn't have time to go in there and put those things on. So this isn't a guy that went into the house and was able to put footies on and scrubs or, or, a, you know, or a panty over his head or gloves on. Like none of that shit happened. And they found zero, they found zero DNA on this scene. Okay. And I'm talking like no sweat, no skin follicles, nothing. Approximately two hours had to like elapsed because he got home from work between, you know, 5.45 and 6, like was typically his uh, time that he got home. And I think on this particular day, one of the interesting facts was um, they would be sending out the letters to the candidates uh, that would be coming into the program on that particular day. Like in the state had assigned some significance to that. So like, you know, when letters would go out and people would find out whether or not they got into the program, they the name escapes me what they called that particular day, but that day was a day that that occurred. So, and I have a feeling part of their narrative was that Garcia was aware of that because it was the same day every year. Like when, you know, people would send their applications in and they would find out on this day. So I, you know, their thing was that Garcia would have known that he might be at work a little bit longer, kind of dealing with the, the ins and outs of that particular situation because it, it goes to the thing where you had said earlier that you know the guy was a terrible killer because he didn't even get his target and it became to us either one you know was it the father and we based that on the fact that we had heard the 911 tapes and it was disturbing to me just his lack of empathy yeah tell me about the 911 tape a little bit since i can't hear it right now but tell me give me the gist of it yeah i mean the gist of it is it was in Granted, he was a forensic pathologist, you know, so like death was not something that he was not used to seeing. He dealt with death every day, he dealt with literally dead bodies on the daily. So in that sense, you know, maybe his demeanor makes a little more sense in light of that. Yeah, a lot of doctors kind of are a little bit have like a flat affect anyway, a little bit. No offense, doctors, but yeah, yeah. no, and I, I agree with that. But you know, this it's his child. If, so yeah, this is yeah. an extenuating circumstance. Right. You know, right. I mean this like I think all 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 bets are off yeah. when it comes to you walk in and your your child's murdered on so the floor. There was no crying, no screaming, no yelling. Basically he calls nine one one and is very matter of fact and yeah, says, My son is dead. Nothing, yeah, nothing even close to that. You know what I mean? Like I like there was no noticeable indication of any kind of emotion at all in the call. But then again, everybody responds differently to trauma. He could have been, you know, just in responding shock, right? in his own way. In yeah. shock, yeah, maybe, but like he was very detailed in what he was saying. You know oh. what I mean? It, it was like, it wasn't like he was at a loss for words. He just came in. It, it was almost as if he had walked into one of his examination rooms and was doing an examination of just a body. Right. You know what I mean? It, it yeah. was very... So where was the mother in this? So the mother time? was traveling. So she, she was also a doctor, uh, and she was out of the country, I believe, at that particular point. I can't recollect exactly if it was out of the country or if she was like in Hawaii, right. but she was out okay. of the continental United States. So okay. it wasn't like where she was accessible, where she was jumping on a plane and getting back home immediately. There was like a gap between when she gets home and 
mm-hmm. you know, and when he discovers the body. Right. So Thomas is being cared for by the nanny, basically, Shirley Sherman. She was a straight cleaning woman. Oh, she, okay. Uh, she performed no nanny services. Oh, she came like okay. once weekly. Okay. I, I think that she typically came on Wednesdays and mm-hmm. for whatever reason, like this particular week, there had been something that had happened in her life that caused her to have to come on. Like she wasn't even supposed to be there that day. Okay. That was not her day to be there. And wow, wrong day and time. For bad, real, yeah. Right? I yeah. mean, that's bad luck. That's as bad, bad of luck mm-hmm. as you can get. But I, I think ultimately, what happens with her is that um, you know she ends up going there, and I, I think that she had tried to recruit one of her friends. Like she would sometimes have one of her friends come because the house was bigger. Mm-hmm. So like if she had a friend that was available that would help her clean, she would bring that friend. And I think that there was a friend that was supposed to come with her, but who had like, for whatever reason, had opted out that day. Right. You know, because our theory was if you're to look at it through the, the glass of this guy came with the motive to kill this guy's son, mm-hmm. because, you know, I mean, what is worse? Like, what is the absolute worst thing that you could do to somebody but kill their child. Take their child right? from them. I mean, yeah. So that, that's, that's the ultimate revenge. Ultimate, right? Yeah. I mean, that there's nothing, but, but that's, that's also like an MO mm-hmm. in terms of like, that's a whole different level of killing in terms of killing a child as opposed right. to killing an adult. I mean, mm-hmm. it just, I, I would imagine, you know, having not murdered anybody, I would imagine that that is an entirely different thing in terms of actually committing the crime. And, in theory, as far as we know about Garcia, if it was in fact him that did it, you know, this would have been the first people that he had ever killed, mm-hmm. you know, so this is like his maiden voyage. And and he walks in and, and you aptly noted yesterday, he he used knives from the home. Right. Right. So he didn't go in, like in terms of a plan, you know, he doesn't go in with weapons. Does he, you know, right. does he go in thinking, okay, I'm going to use knives from the home. I mean, that's taking a big chance. If you go to the trouble of traveling as far as he would have traveled, I would think you would bring uh, an appropriate murder weapon with you to play this out. Right. But, yeah. Right. That was something that always bugged me. Mm-hmm. You know, it just was such a, and I mean, yeah, of course you can assume that there's going to be cutlery, you know, at the, at the, at the fucking house, but you know, to but to go in and, you know, basically just be relying on that you're going to have the opportunity to get yourself over to wherever the knives are kept while keeping these people at bay. Exactly. Like you don't know really what you're going to encounter when you walk in the door. So you don't know if you're going to get jumped. I would think if you're planning this murder, you would have a weapon on you exactly. just in case. Yeah. Exactly. Or, or, or they're going to run or anything, right. you know, right. I mean, anything that you know, there's right. so many X factors in going in there not prepared. Mm-hmm. So what you're kind of alluding to when you talk, when you go down this line is obviously he's your client. You say he's not guilty. You don't think he was guilty. Mike, right there. What are your thoughts? I, you know, and, and I'll say this without breaking privilege. I mean, my client right. never at any point made any kind of admissions to us. And he always adamantly de- denied that he was um, involved in either, either set. You right. know, he, he never in any way, shape or form made any kind of admission to us. And, and like, I, I can't recall if I said that, but I've said it many times before. I, I don't ask my clients, you know, that is not something that we do as a defense attorney. Right. You're not asking your client, 
you know, it's not like the TV where, you know, you have to tell me the truth. I'm your lawyer. Mm-hmm. I, I don't want to know. I don't ask. I ask what they are saying that you did, you know, meaning they being the cops. We've got a riverboat you know, we'll, we'll going wait, down the We'll wait for the riverboat. <laughs> Actually, it adds. It's kind of a cool it, sound. It kind of adds a little. Yeah. Do you want to talk about in this where we're recording or? Uh, yeah, I mean, it's pretty cool. um, yeah, it's pretty cool. It's pretty cool. While we've got the riverboat going down the river right outside our window, we can tell everyone we're in a mansion this weekend we on are. the Mississippi River. And this is yeah, it's awesome. One so, of the yeah most yeah. amazing recording venues I've ever had the pleasure of being in. Yeah, it's really neat. It's got a it's got a really cool vibe, and you know, because Kelly lives in. Iowa and I live in Illinois and we had wanted to do this live because it sounds better. Mm-hmm. So Darren had come up with the concept that we, we had a friend that lives in Davenport who would just purchase and it, oddly enough, it was Gilda Radner's, um, <laughs> she owned the home and they had converted it into a not for profit that dealt with, you know, young cancer patients, kids with cancer. Yeah. So it was like a real kind of a righteous type of place. And I think COVID helped. Um, or, you know, depending on which way you look at it, uh, it, it kind of caused the demise of that particular not-for-profit. They put the house in the market and my, my friend Chris jumped yeah. immediately as soon as he saw it was on the market. Good for him. This place is gorgeous. It's amazing. It's basically it's amazing. my dream house. I'm pretty sure it's haunted though. I mean, it's a hundred plus years old. So, yeah. you know, I, I would not doubt that. I just wish it was October right now. Yeah. It would be, it would be a great Halloween <laughs> spot. No question about it. Yeah. But it's got like the, you know, like the tin ceilings that are amazing. It's got all the original woodwork, like the stained glass windows are beautiful um, and, and Chris has just done an amazing job in terms of yeah I'll take some pictures and put them on my Instagram for sure yeah it's it's really a it's really a cool place to yeah. record and and the sound is good you know th- there's another room that we would have probably recorded in but the ceilings look to be mm. between 12 and 14 feet high so it was a little echoey so well, we yeah. came into more of the lounge area this is record. cozy this has a great aesthetic and yeah. the riverboat's gone so we can get back to the exactly the um, subject at hand. So yeah, so we, so we've got the situation where where Doctor Hunter's come home. He's discovered the bodies. He's put the call into nine one one. You know, this is around again. I think between at that point, the call goes in. I'd want to say like six six fifteen p.m. Mm-hmm. on the thirteenth of March. So police arrive pretty quickly. Okay, and yeah. what do you know about his? demeanor when they showed up. Do you know anything about that? It was, it was very similar to the 911 call. You know, I mean, he kind of never broke character in terms of like when they got him back, they did bring him to the station and they did interview him. You know, I mean, that's always the family's always the first they're going to look always. Yeah. Especially like in a child murder, it's very frequently the parents or someone close to the family like that. So, so you think that's possible? I I know we've been talking about it a little bit. Maybe the dad. I don't know. I I don't know. Yeah. I don't, I don't know. At trial, I did not get the sense that, you know, and, and that's difficult for a defense attorney. Like I was not going to go up there attacking the father of the victim. Right. no matter what I may have thought deep inside, the mm-hmm. last thing in the world that I was going to do was to make myself look like a giant asshole to yeah. everyone in the courtroom, not just the jury, but to everybody by kind of grilling the father mm-hmm. in terms of his reaction, his initial reaction or lack thereof. You know, so it was 
that was tough. You know, I mean, I had a lot of calls like that during that trial, but. But I'm sure police looked into him as a, a potential suspect or a person of interest and probably Absolutely. cleared him of all of that. Absolutely. Or, yeah. I mean, you know, I think his, you know, his alibi was as good as anybody's in terms of, I don't know that anyone like saw him directly still at work. You know, right. But in terms of his story kind of lining up with, Oh, it was called the, it was called match day. So match day is the day where they kind of match you with your program. So you apply okay. to several programs. So like that day was match day, you know, and everything kind of lined up in terms of providing kind of a, a suitable alibi. And, you know, as we kind of get into the case a little bit more, and the one thing about this case is that anyone who's done this, and I know that the generation wise done an episode. California dreaming. Case, yeah. California yeah. dreaming did a four parter on this. And both of those are kind of geared towards, you know, what's available to them, which was the state's evidence and kind of the the state's case, which, you know, is no fault of anyone's, you know, because that's what was available to them. Mm -hmm. You know, like I happen to be in the position to provide what the actual defense in that case was. I'm really looking forward to doing that because it was... There, there were, you know, we have two separate sets of murders, which we'll get into a little bit more, but there was a, a five-year gap in between them, mm-hmm. you know, so it was, you know. Right. So, yeah, you were you were Anthony Garcia's lawyer, so you have a very... Yeah, I've got a very intimate knowledge. knowledge of everything yeah. that really went down. So. Exactly. You know, and in a case like that, you know, where the ultimate penalty is death, if you lose, you know, you have to go into that with the mindset of the defense attorney as mm-hmm. that I am going to make them prove their case. You're there to save his life. I, I am, you know, and, and, and if I can't, I want to walk out of that courtroom knowing that the state was able to prove their case beyond a reasonable doubt so that I can sleep at night knowing mm-hmm. that I failed a, a otherwise innocent man, right. you know, and that this guy, you know, I mean, they're, that's always the thing with the death penalty is when, you know, when you hear about these innocent guys that, you know, are executed, it's, I mean, there's nothing really worse than that. Nothing worse than that. So, yeah. So Nebraska has the death penalty. That's another interesting story. Okay. There's so many facets to this. So when we got the case in 2013, yes. And then I think I want to say around 2015, they, they, uh, the legislature, reversed it and they got rid of the death penalty. And then the governor, I, I forget what Ricketts first name was, but he was from the Ricketts family, okay. which is a big money family. But he, he, he basically supported a pack, like a, you know, like a committee that mm-hmm. basically he used his own money sitting as the, the governor of the state to get the death penalty put back onto the ballot via oh, a, wow. uh, yeah, it, it was crazy. It was, it was absolutely crazy. And, and not only that, like he's, he was coming out and making statements that they needed the death penalty for people like Anthony Garcia. And this is pre-trial. So this guy had already judged my client wow. guilty. Yeah, 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 yeah. And was throwing it out there in the press and, and was spending a ton of money because what, what happened with that is that they had to go out and, um, I think they had to amass like 500,000 signatures in order to get that referendum put back onto the ballot. And what happened is if they were able to get those signatures by the due date, what happened is it reverts back to being legal, meaning oh, that they okay. were like, so it didn't stay status quo, like where it was still illegal 
or, you know, banned mm-hmm. pending the, the referendum election, you know, it was, or, or the vote, mm-hmm. it, it like, it, it went back to being the death penalties on the table. Mm-hmm. So it was like, like we, cause it like, we felt great relief when it was like during the middle of the trial, we're like, oh my God, you know, they got rid of the death penalty. Like, yeah, ah. that's one, one huge worry that's off your shoulders right. then it, at that it, point. And it really, it, it did. We felt great relief from that. Mm-hmm. So like to have that like flip flop on us, right. like in the middle of it was. Yeah. Kind of a. Yeah. It, it threw you for a loop. <laughs> it really did. So, um, obviously as a criminal defense attorney, I assume you're probably anti-death penalty, but I want to know like, what is, what are your thoughts on death penalty in general? So I've always felt that the harshest penalty that you can ever give someone is not the death penalty. I think the I death agree. penalty, I, I think that if you strip somebody from their liberty with no hope of ever stepping foot out of the prison again, there's nothing worse than spending the rest of your life in yeah. prison. Nothing. So, yeah, life without the possibility exactly. of parole. I mean, there is nothing that is just more damning than that because you've got a situation where you're never going to do any of the things that we all take for granted because we do it every day, hug kids, go on yeah. vacations, anything, you know, eat a nice meal out, right. go to see a movie, go to see live music, and yeah. anything that we all get to do on a daily mm-hmm. basis, you're never doing again. Mm-hmm. You know, there's such a finality to that. And there's such a, a an aspect of bleakness that I just have always felt that if you want to truly, truly punish someone, that's the way to do it because like for instance like Gacy by year 14 of his appeals process was ready he's like I'm done like it's just like I want the execution to take yeah. place I'm done you know what I mean didn't so he, like, didn't he try to speed it up or something like asked for it sooner or he did because like that. and that goes to what I'm saying you know it's like you he knew he was never walking out of there you know and if his choice was all right I'm going to call it you yeah. know, and it's going to be done by the state, then that's what I'm choosing. Yeah. You know, that, that should tell anybody who's like, if it's an eye for an eye to me, you're, you're punishing them more by keeping them in that six by six cell for the rest of their lives. Mm-hmm. That to me is just, you know, cause like fundamentally, I, I don't really, I don't fall into the camp that I don't think that the state should be doing what the criminal is accused and convicted of in terms of killing, mm-hmm. you know, that that's not within the state's rights. I mean, that's not my thing. My, my thing is when you're talking about the punitive nature, the punishment aspect of it, if you're trying to really punish, you know, somebody for what they've done to me, there's just nothing more cruel than keeping yeah. them in that, that cage forever. Yeah. I know? totally agree with that. The hunter, murders take place Mm -hmm. and it's stunning like that whole like this is something that does not happen especially in that neighborhood the Creighton community was just blown away you know they all felt like it was an attack against the university and then I think that the cops had made that link at least a little bit though because it's just two victims the son and the housekeeper how would they have been able to make that link well, cause they're, you know, when they're trying to figure out a motive, right? you know, anytime cops are trying to, you know, kind of like wheedle out a, a motive, you know, they're obviously going to look at, like you had said earlier, you know, I mean, as far as, as Thomas went, they really did dig into all his contacts on Xbox Live. You know, yeah. I, I have all the transcripts from 
all their chats that they had. Oh, wow. You know, and there were, there were some interesting characters. I was going to say, know. yeah. Did you, did you see anything that looked suspicious? I, I, I saw some things that like kind of piqued my interest in the sense that he was dealing with, like he had kind of a crew that he would kind of link up with on a daily basis when he'd get on that were all substantially older than he was. Okay. You know, I mean, I'm talking like seven, eight, nine years older. Yeah. He was a young kid. Mm-hmm. Which I thought was strange. You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. It was like, I guess, in the sense that, you know, and I'm, I'm imagining I've never heard, um, Thomas speak, mm-hmm. but I imagine that he probably sounded like he was a young, young boy. He was 11. So right. I'm you sure know? he so sounded, he sounded like, sounded a like an 11 year old kid, yeah. you know, and so yeah, that, like that aspect of it, um, was certainly interesting to us mm-hmm. when we were looking at it, but, um, you know, what goes on over the next five years is that Omaha PD, like, really left no stone unturned except for the big one. You know, so they, they kind of made the link with the Creighton aspect of it being that the father worked at Creighton, but they didn't, they didn't take that next step in saying kind of like, you know, so could it be somebody that had a beef yeah, from Creighton that was coming right. back to exact revenge? Right. Because the, so if we, like you said, five years passed and it's, there's another murder, double right. homicide. And that is another, um, tie to Creighton. Right. And so that's kind of, I thought when they were starting to put the pieces together that somebody's targeting specifically the pathology department at our university. Yeah. And, and that's, that's kind of what happened. So, you know, we'll, we'll, We'll jump ahead. So basically the, the Hunter case goes cold mm-hmm. and like, I'm going to go back to that when okay. we kind of get to the trial because there was a fascinating thing that happened in terms of our investigation in that case that like blew our minds. And it, and it kind of goes back to when I was talking about our criminologist yesterday saying that the knives being left in the neck was something that he had never seen and that he considered an absolute MO. That this was something that that killer had done specifically to leave a message. Yeah. And that, um, you know, it, it was something that was not common, like knives left in bodies. Yeah. You don't see that very often. It's, they usually right. pull it out, discard it, take it with them, exactly. throw it in a lake, whatever they do. So. Right. They're trying to get rid of the, you know, trying to get rid of the evidence. Right. So, it, which like kind of in, and we lost track a little bit, you know, kind of lost our way towards the end of the recording session yesterday, but. In terms of us trying to determine, because I had asked you, like in what type of circumstance, especially when you're talking about a double homicide that involves like knives, and they found no, like I think they found two small samples of foreign DNA, none of, neither of which matched our guy at all. Like they were, they were okay. he was excluded on those two. Mm-hmm. And, you know, so it, when you think about just kind of the logistics of going in, committing the murder, and let's assume that the guy that they saw walking around the neighborhood that we talked about yesterday, that four to five people saw a person that didn't necessarily belong in that neighborhood or they didn't recognize as being somebody from the neighborhood. Mm-hmm. You know, they all said, yeah, you know, he, he was kind of wearing an ill-fitting suit. He had olive-colored skin. Mm-hmm. He's not somebody that we saw. He was carrying kind of like a satchel. Um, you know, we had the one gal from the street behind that saw this person park a Honda CRV, kind of sit there for a little bit. 
get out of the car and then start walking. She loses sight of him, you know, when, and then she leaves to go pick up her daughter. Mm-hmm. And by the time she gets back, the thing is gone, you know, cause she had said, Oh, I, for whatever reason, I felt like going out and taking a, a photograph of it. And I'm going to get back to that too, because at CRV, there were, there were about three large pieces of circumstantial evidence that the state was able to, to provide that kind of gave them the confidence to go after Anthony Garcia, where there was really no direct evidence at all. It was like the entire case in, in a death penalty case with no direct evidence, like entirely circumstantial is, is scary and challenging for a state to kind of proceed on that. So know? direct evidence is defined as what? Like actually like DNA, hair, whatever, or what else would be direct evidence? Yeah, then? like DNA or like an eyewitness that actually saw okay. it happen. All right. You know, or yeah. a circumstance. Like the, the best way I always kind of explain circumstantial evidence is, you know, say that you go to bed, you know, you look out at your yard, there's no snow, you wake up in the morning and the yard is covered in snow. Now, you didn't see it snow during the course of the night because you were sleeping, but you know, obviously, because there's snow all over the ground that it snowed during the course of the right. evening. So that that's kind of how you have to look at circumstantial evidence, whereas direct evidence would be you were awake, you saw it snowing, okay, and the snow, you know, you know what I mean? Yeah. So it's kind of the same thing with that. So circumstantially, they had like three three kind of smoking gun things in their estimation that really put their their targets squarely on Garcia and the, and from that point forward they never looked at anybody else. And this is where we're going to leave off in this multi-part series for today. There's a lot more coming, so stay tuned for those next few episodes over the next couple days. There are a lot more details, a lot more rabbit holes to go down, and a lot of information about the trial that you need to hear. Again, I have so enjoyed working with Bob Mata and Darren Wood from The Defense Diaries. I hope you've really enjoyed this crossover series that we did together. It was a lot of fun, and it was very interesting. If you haven't listened to The Defense Diaries, go check them out right now. Follow them on Instagram, Facebook, all the socials. And if you're not following True Crime IRL, go ahead and do that too at the handle True Crime IRL, all one word. This has been Kelly Barron's Brink, your host of True Crime IRL, True Crime in Real Life. And until next time, lock your doors, people. You know how to do it. Just click it, lock it, do it. Lock those doors. Bye-bye.